This episode of Life Behind Bars is brought to you by the new George Dickel and Leopold Brothers collaboration, Blend Rye. The episode was taped before a live audience at the New York Distilling Company in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Welcome to Life Behind Bars Live. Oh, hey. Rye Whiskey Summit. I'm Noah Rothbaum, Daily Beast, half full editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co host, David Wongerich. How are you, Dave? I'm doing extremely well. And yourself? I am doing very well as well. We uh, have an incredibly special show today. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, kind of a dream show, I have to say. One that, uh, you know, uh, if we if we were to come up with a show like an idea for it, I, I don't I don't think I would have even <laughs> believed that we would be able to get the guests that we got today. I don't think today. we can get anything both this geeky and this entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hopefully deliver on both ends of that. Well, well, without further ado, we have three rye whiskey luminaries and experts with us today. Hopefully, they will introduce themselves. Sure. I'm Nicole Austin. I'm the general manager and distiller for Cascade Hollow Distilling Co., uh, which is the home of George Dickel. But my, my love of rye goes uh, way back. I got my career started here in Brooklyn with Kings County Distillery. Um, and obviously, I've been tight with New York Distilling Company for a long time, so it's amazing to be back. I'm Todd Leopold with Leopold Brothers Distillery and out of Denver, Colorado, and we make rye whiskey. I'm Alan Katz. Welcome to the New York Distilling Company. I'm one of the co-founders here. It's great to actually have an audience here. This is the first time we've had guests in these times. And uh, my love of rye goes back uh, 33 years to drink in Manhattans with my grandmother uh, in downtown Baltimore. And it was really that experience and range of experiences with my family that started my love affair with rye. And grateful that we have the opportunity to make unique and interesting rye whiskeys from New York. Boy, I, I blame Alan. He, he was the first person to really put a bug in my ear about rye whiskey. And, and at the time, I thought he was a little bit bizarre. Like, I was <laughs> like, why is this man so obsessed with rye whiskey? Well, Who cares about rye whiskey? <laughs> like, what, what is rye See, whiskey? You know? I'll say I understood it instantly because I was born in Pittsburgh. I was going to say, uh, you, you come by On the, on the banks of the Monongahela, as I've right. heard it's pronounced. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, nobody ever talked about it when I was a kid. It's the big river that uh, gave its name to a whole style of rye about which there's a lot of argument. But, but anyway, uh, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania is very much rye country. And it, it even uh, as a kid, it kind of filtered in that this is like what people have here as a result like oh that was our conversation alan was probably 20 years ago almost and and after that you know wherever i went rye whiskey everybody's talking about rye whiskey right it was it was sort of become you know one of the signature spirits of the cocktail you know revival. it was a secret handshake you oh, know for sure it was like, it was like like gin and maraschino and a oh, few yeah. other things it was like oh rye whiskey you know i'm gonna uh uh, like, well, we'll shake hands on that, and <laughs> you're one of us. There was plenty of gin, and there was probably plenty of maraschino, but there wasn't plenty of rye uh, there 20 was years very ago. very yeah. little. Writing about and covering rye whiskey's rebirth, one of the, the most interesting things is that, like, I mean, it was, it was almost dead, right? I mean, there's almost very little bit produced, right, uh, not that long ago. 
There wasn't, it was mostly out of Kentucky and it was, in my opinion, really good whiskey. There just wasn't a lot of it. And with influences like Dave and that you know, well, I, I host know of characters. We, we, we've all said, uh, we used to talk to the distillers in Kentucky back, I'm talking 20 years ago. Uh, I would say to them, I love your bourbon. I also really love your rye. You go, they, they'd go, rye, yeah, that's stuff. <laughs> Son, we spill as much bourbon as a day <laughs> in a day as we make rye in a year. Yeah. And that was like, and, and then they just pat me on the head, you know? It was like, it was really patronizing. It was, I got the same treatment. Yeah. <laughs> Names will be withheld for the sake of polite conversation. But, a, and and I, I don't begrudge it either, but it was interesting because very honestly and directly being from New York, we were saying at the time that all the bars that were interested in it were running out of it three, yeah. four times a year. Oh my God, yeah. The few brands that were available and somehow that just you know started to click a little bit. It's kind of a weird thing because you know rye really fell out of favor to the point where you know the people in Kentucky started producing it. They're producing it one day a year, which yeah. sounds ludicrous, but it's true. They hated doing it, and 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 in. Not only was it a problem because there wasn't a lot of it, but also I think looking at rye through the lens of Kentucky, like very much like changed our perception of its history and it left out a lot of stuff and rye history sort of morphed into bourbon history, which is very different. And I remember Dave, you know, as, as he's wont to do, looking into rye history and telling me all types of amazing things about stills that I'd never heard of production techniques I'd never heard of. And at first I wasn't even sure if like, this was like you a You thought I was smoking crap. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 and you know, maybe. I, 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 my personal life is my personal life. <laughs> I definitely thought that this was like, this was out there. Like, you know, yeah. and, and. And it was. It, it was, but I mean, you were talking about, you know, we'd read about the three chambers still. Um, and then you told me about it, and I, I didn't know well, what to make of it, really. I, I found out about it. I went, uh, I had just, this was uh, 2012. I had just signed the contract to uh, edit the Oxford Companion Spirits and Cocktails, which has just come out. So <laughs> it shows you, uh, with Noah's huge help, I went over to London and spent a week at the British Library doing research. and. For some reason, I looked up American whiskey to see what they had over there, and I found a book that I had never, never seen before here uh, that talked about the standard American still as being a wooden cylinder with, copper, with three copper uh, plates dividing it into, into chambers and like little pipes going up and doubling back so that uh, this, they fed steam in at the bottom and it would bubble through the liquid on each, each, uh, in each level. I was like, basically, uh, we're allowed to curse on this uh, we are. Uh, podcast, thank God. Because I was what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is the standard American still? I've never heard of this. I looked into it more, and yes, it was the standard American still. I mean, it sounded like a legend to it, those it, it of just, us at first. It it's seemed, like, it seemed so weird. Be real. But it turns out, um, I was doing academic research into it, but somebody else here was doing practical research. Uh, Todd, can, can you talk about your journey into this, uh, well, this it, thing? Because you actually had one of these things made. 
<laughs> well, well, it started from the same place that you did. What the, you know, what the hell is this thing? Um, and then coming across IRS papers that explained that this was the standard. I think that's the important part that I think yeah. some people I, that I run into when we're describing this still, that it's some weird thing that some guy named Ted ran, no. you know, in Cincinnati, and that was it, but that this was the standard. And everybody, that's, everybody had these. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what really got me going on, okay, well, why? Why were they using this still? What was the purpose behind it? And why in the hell did it completely disappear, right? It just fell off the face of the earth. And, you know, so that, that, that was about 16 years ago now. And um, my brother and I are in our 21st year. And unfortunately, at the time I first came across it, I didn't have enough money to, to, to do that, which is probably a good thing because I got better at my art and craft, uh, um, you know, to the point where I convinced him to, to cut that check. And that was a... We, we laugh now today, we can't remember. I don't even think we had a meeting. I think we were just walking past each other and he said, well, go. And that, that was kind of Amazing. the end of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, my, it's fun for me when people realize that you know, it's not necessarily the distiller um, that, that made this project uh, work. It was the poor guy who had to cut a check hoping that his younger brother knew what the hell he was talking about <laughs> with, with this crazy still. And then, it, then after that, uh, that check cleared, then it was up to me to make it a reality. But um, it was just, you know, the same fascinating readings uh, the, the, that you came across where it was described as yielding a heavy-bodied whiskey in that IRS document uh, that I came across. It was a survey of, of 31 different distilleries in America, about half of them made bourbon and half of them made rye, and what they were trying to do was come up with what's now called the standards of identity, so the rules for whiskey making. And when you looked at it, all of the rye distillers used a chamber still one way or another. Some of them were described as a log still. Some of you have heard that term before. That's a chamber still too, by the by. Um, the reason that we did not, uh, and Dave was one of the first, well, why aren't you making it out of wood? Um, because I value really my life. I'm really glad you didn't. Yeah, yeah I value yeah. my life and the life of everybody. So also, Todd, uh, if I can ask, how many Coopers do you uh, <laughs> keep in <laughs> yeah. Exactly. None. So, I mean, it would have been so pretty hard to convince yeah. Benno to Back build then, it as it is. Every distillery had a Cooper. <laughs> Absolutely. You, know, and you we, could build things out of wood. And, and we and, did find, like, obituaries for people who had been killed, like, in, as these wooden stills would blow up. Yeah, but also for copper stills, too, frankly. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, those blew up, too, without question. Too. But fortunately, uh, yours is copper. So. Officially, ours is copper. It's much safer. Um, we're, we're in a post-OSHA era, I, I think, so <laughs> we, we, we do, do our best to make sure everybody goes home in one piece. Um, but well, I was, Always successfully, right? Yes, always. yeah. Always. That's Every right. Day. 21 years, no accidents. We're pretty proud yeah, of that, actually. It. When you saw the descriptions of, of, of the still and looking at it and having a fundamental understanding of the, the physics behind it and why it runs at higher temperatures and why it's running for a longer period of time and what that's going to do in terms of extracting flavors out of that rye mash. And almost all of them were 80% rye and 20% malted barley. It's a very similar recipe in each one of the distilleries I came across. I gotta ask you, I found this little article where I think it was North Dakota. It was in the late teens, they tested like 16 top American whiskeys identified by brand. 
and the overholt rye, one of the two or three ryes they had, came out highest in every extract of, you know, it, it, it had the highest aldehydes, all, the, all these flavor compounds, right? It had the highest everything except for uh, higher alcohols, which are bad. It had the lowest in the list. And it's like, okay, this, this is a huge whiskey. It was, it was like bigger than Old Crow. It was bigger and, you know, more, more of all the flavor things. And that was just really kind of mind-blowing is what were these people doing? You know? Well, a, a lot of it, and we, we did have ours tested as, at a, a friend's outfit with much better lab equipment. Yeah, I bet. Um, and found that the higher alcohols were indeed lower. A lot of these production procedures that, that, that we use are kind of left over. You know, you kind of touched earlier this afternoon about the German influence on distilling yeah, yeah. coming over here. And, you know, one of my favorite stories we like to tell on tours that I went to German brewing school many years ago, and um, we were taught as young distillers a really nice saying that your customers shouldn't be able to tell how strong your beer is until they try and get up from the table, <laughs> <laughs> right? So that lesson is to make sure your yeast is happy, make sure there's plenty of it, make sure there's zinc, plenty of nitrogen, make it a very happy yeast. Don't give it a lot to eat. Okay, that, that's a very big one. So the whiskeys back in, back in those days, and at so least- So it's kind of like gremlins. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but they tended to be lower alcohol beers. So in other words, the distiller's beer was usually around five or 6%. Um, and it's much more common to move up to a lot higher alcohol and to make the math easy if you're making a 5% alcohol versus a 10% on the same amount of equipment, you've just doubled your production. So you can see why you would want to move it to that higher alcohol, alcohol concentration. The problem with that is you're feeding that yeast a lot more food. And the way I like to describe it, it's, it's like saying you've got 10 minutes to eat those three Thanksgiving dinners. It's going to make the yeast upset. When you make the yeast upset, it stresses it out. It makes uh, a lot of esters. The biggest one is ethyl acetate. Um, the other one Dave mentioned earlier, which are the higher alcohols, basically the stuff that smells boozy or hot or whatever descriptor you'd like to use. So we're fermenting at a much lower temperature, so we're fermenting in the 60s, and we're fermenting to a much uh, lower gravity, which means it's 5% alcohol, so it's just a nice light snack. So we're getting <laughs> the aromas that we're looking for that, that Dave mentioned without that higher alcohol formation, and I think you'll see uh, later today when you drink both whiskeys, they're quite soft. The fact is that like nobody's probably run a three chamber still like in America to make whiskey in decades, right? Since at least before at World War Two, right? No, I mean, I, I, since the fifties. Since the fifties. Okay. There so, were a couple. There were a couple holdouts who tried to do it again after World War Two, and then they petered out. But so the fact is, is that it's not like any of us exactly knew what you would produce. You know, we we've all had a chance to sample the whiskey. Were you surprised at how it tasted? No. <laughs> That's All right. Um, if I if I was surprised by what what uh, what it tasted like, I would never have asked my brother to cut that check. So I had an understanding as to what it what it what it would do, and you know the the way I described it. You know we run pot stills. Um, the first couple liters that come off when you make a rye whiskey, it kind of tastes like you, somebody snuck in overnight and jammed a bunch of lavender in the condenser, right? The first couple liters, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I knew that it would be like that for the entire run, just based on what it was that I was reading. And that, that is by far the dominating 
aroma, that is the dominating flavor. And so the maturation is quite different than malt whiskey or bourbon where I'm trying to get to the point where everything else comes up to match that, right? So the first two or three years, it's a complete train wreck and you have to be very patient. Nicole and I were talking about how it's very similar to you know, lager beer production or some of the other whiskeys that are out there where if you taste it on a wrong day and you're inexperienced, you can say, well, that's crap. Start, <laughs> start unloading those barrels. Yeah, you convince yourself that you've destroyed your whole life, it, career, it, and future. Yeah. Test your whiskey <laughs> barrels at the wrong moment. If it wasn't enough that you were making a whiskey that nobody has made in decades, right, you, you further blew my mind and Dave's mind by telling us that you were going to blend it with rye from Dickel. And, and then that sent Dave and I and our, and our colleague Wayne Curtis down a rabbit hole. Of there, the, there were a lot of emails. There were a lot of emails, <laughs> some calls. They were, they were, it got a little heated, I'm not gonna lie, right? Because <laughs> Wayne had talked to you, right? And Dave and I were like, I, I've never heard of like three chambers still being blended with anything else. So then w what we did is what we do best. And we went back to the archives and sure enough, like there's an article that we had both read um, from the 30s about Maryland rye that talked about the, the articles about like the largest three chamber still rye producer. It didn't say which one it was, but talked it was about Baltimore pure rye. In fact, talked about how some of it was bottled as three chamber still rye. Some of it was sold to other people and then some of it was blended, in, including with Canadian whiskey. Yeah. And, and Dave and I, I had read over that paragraph probably 10 times looking at that article. The article is amazing and never occurred to me to think, wow, they were blending three chambers still right. Yeah, that, that was with, something that we just, I'd never really looked into. You and know? It, it blew my, I was like, oh my God. And Dave and I were both like, okay, Wayne. Why wouldn't like, you? Right, you're, you're, you're right for the wrong reasons, Wayne, but you're <laughs> right. Um, but I mean. I mean, you, you can see that it's what it's for right. when you and, taste and, it. And, and, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit like Nicole about like why this partnership like appealed to you. I mean, other than loving Todd. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like, you want to do something? Don't. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, is there more? Um, yeah, sure. Yes. What are you doing? Uh, no, for me, I mean, you know, I've been following what Todd's been doing as well for a long time. We've been friends for a long time. And for he knew what it was going to do. But I know all of us in the industry were sort of just waiting quietly with bated breath, like seemed like a big mystery to us, um, you know, what this was going to be like and the chance of creating like a genuinely distinct flavor. So when he sent me a sample, I mean, to taste something like that that's so big, I, I was really excited to have access to a flavor like that, you know, for blending. Like we don't, you know, we didn't have the equivalent of like a heavily peated whiskey that they have in Scotland and America. Like we didn't have an equivalent of something that was really heavy bodied, big flavor that could be used as a blending tool like that. So, um, you know, when he told me he might be interested in doing something like that, I mean, I jumped at the chance. Like it's perfect it, thing to do with it. Was it hard for you to find like a rye that would work like your own whiskey like to work with, with honestly no it wasn't hard i mean this is a weird like yeah. i think it, you can see from the historic context like we're not the first people to do this you know like we're not breaking new ground here it's not like we didn't discover something it, but it this is it's very obvious when you start working with these tools that this is what they were made to do and someone else already did the hard work of figuring that out and like a column distilled rye like we were producing at cascade hollow like it it 
they, they fit, they fit together like puzzle pieces. You know, it was really, it was really obvious and immediate, you know, those heavy, those like, that the heavy floral notes and the, those heavy herbaceous notes that are present in the three chamber rye, you know, diluted against the very stone fruit forward, you know, column distilled rye base, like they, they plugged into one another, you know, like that, that stone fruit note and that fruit note in particular is probably the only thing that isn't really present in the three chamber rye. And in our column distilled rye, it's hugely present and it's the dominant flavor and you could just see how they would fit together. Um, so pulling, I had been, I knew we had this rye at Cascade Hollow. It had never, you know, been bottled, but obviously I had sampled our maturing whiskeys and I knew we had it and was sort of trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do with it. And this was just such an immediate and obvious thing when, when he called me and told me I could. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think between the three chambers, so rye, the collaboration of rye that you're doing together, and then also the use of like heritage grains, like Alan, that you've been using, like maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and how that has sort of changed what we think of as rye whiskey flavor. Yeah, I think there's some great cycles going on and hearing you talk about the 30s in blending rye, that was a trendy style. It wasn't, oh, blended whiskey that, you know, if you relate it in our era, you know, to the, to the 80s and the transition from blended scotch to single malt, it was a commonplace because that was the cultural attitude about blending whiskeys and combining flavors the way Nicole is talking about. Uh, and for us, you know, finding a distinctive mark was really focusing on the largesse of the geography of New York State. And looking back uh, in the similar historical sense and finding quote-unquote heritage or heirloom grains that could, ha could have possibly uh, a distinctive set of characteristics. Uh, and for us, uh, I'd be honest, we didn't know what we would get. And we, we were looking at different varieties, three, not a lot. You, you talk with the you know, National Seed Bank and through... Yeah, that's plenty, though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know... Well, not plenty that are native to this geography. Right. And not plenty that can survive the seasons today that they might have 100 years ago, whether the soil composition is different or the water table is different. And it turned out, of the three that we got, only one made it through all the the muster, so to speak, and it's called Horton, after an, an English family whose origins go back to uh, 12th century uh, England, and in the late 17th century, they moved to New York and other parts of North America, and lo and behold, it was a very distinctive grain, and we uh, started playing with it. It took five years just to have enough to, have enough to actually ferment and mash and distill, and then you play the further patience game, and it's exciting to have some that's really on the cusp of five years now to say, hmm, well, how is this different, whether it's from grains from Colorado or grains from Tennessee or Indiana or whatnot, and see if there is some geographical influence. And I, I would say, yes, there is, included with all the other factors of how it's distilled or what temperatures you're looking at and activations you're taking at from a fermentation standpoint, let alone how, how long and where you might be aging it. Do you think as a result we're getting closer to what rye whiskey actually tasted like, you know, a century ago or even 60 years ago or 70 years ago? For me, I'd say no, and it's hard to do. And it takes me back to an experience I had with you, Dave, where we were tasting some old whiskeys 
some rise in bourbons, and I, I remember the conversation. It was a small group of people, and I kept saying, there's a green note, a vegetal note, to a range of these whiskeys. And I thought, well, were they left you know, in a closet by a radiator? And <laughs> I remember, you, know, you made a comment that, oh, you know, they didn't season oak for staves, perhaps, but in a similar fashion. I will say, I think I was wrong, <laughs> because <laughs> I tasted Todd's rye, and it has that same note. Well, that could be a and factor. I, and I think it's due to the fact that the rye cooks for so long in the three chambers, longer even than in a pot still. Uh, and it brings out like some back notes, clearly, that are just not present in... I mean, I, I wonder, because I know they didn't season, because you've got records on on seasoning staves and yeah. people went back and forth. But the first time I tasted this, uh, this the, 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 the Leopold Three Chamber rye, it brought a powerful sense memory that I then checked. I still have a little bit of 1909 Overholt in a, in a little bottle. And I taste, and I, you know, I smelled this way. You know, that's that smell. This is the old rye smell and it's very, very distinctive and However, not all old whiskeys had that. I, I agree with that, and I'd almost say to answer your question, Noah, I'd say they're all related cousins in a very yeah. positive way. And, and some of them go like out into that cedar and pine way, and others go into the mellow and rich chocolatey way. And you know, it was always a spectrum. There was no uniformity in American whiskey making. Right. There was anything but. I mean, that's the most exciting thing that this is bringing yeah. back. Yeah, exactly. Right? It excites me as, you know, like a journalist, as a whiskey fan, as a drinker, you know, that, that we, we, as much as we know today, that there's still so much out there that we have yet to uncover the fact that something like the Three Chamber still could go extinct and nobody remembered it all, really. I mean, except for... Although the, it was in the, B, the BATF, the Bureau of... Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which is always a great time. Uh, it, was, it, was in, it was in their manual until the 1990s, was a diagram of the three chambers still. Although nobody actually used them, I think, but they kept it in there in case right. anybody did. It's like, this is how this thing works. The fact that there was... It just takes that long to update regulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 50-year timeline. It, it excites me that there, who knows what else is out there. And, and I, that's, I think, there's so much you know, in, in terms of what we can do with rye and, and the future of rye that is just so exciting. So uh, I'm looking forward to what the three of you do in the coming years, no pressure. Well, um, no. I, I do have a final question for each yeah. one of you, if I can. Please. If there was a whiskey that you're not making now that you could make that you haven't yet, what would it be? I'm, I'll start with you, Nicole. I wish I could still touch Maybe you're Empire. already making I know, right? I'm like, what am I not making that I want to make? I mean, I'm pretty enabled over here. Um, you're like, I'd like a four chamber still. <laughs> I, think, like I, know, I mean, I would love a way to somehow like transport myself. What I really want to touch is all of the other different regions. Like I love operating and exploring Tennessee, but I wish I also had a distillery like in New York to make Empire Rye and in Colorado and in California. Like I wish I had oh, distilleries all over the country so I well, could make we like, do too, so. regional <laughs> identities. That's a, in a perfect world, I would create Dickel in like 10 different states. All right, well, we're wow. pulling for you on that one. <laughs> yeah. and, and Todd? 
Well, the, the one that, w that all of us, I think, want to see is uh, we have a, our own floor malting plant, so we're, we're definitely looking forward to putting a peated malt into the three chamber. You're going to use Colorado peat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got glaciers. From like Leadville or something? They're, they're, well, actually, the, right where the uh, uh, turn goes to South Park, Colorado, <laughs> there's this very, very flat stretch. So you're going to call it Cartman Rye? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, <laughs> I feel like I get sued on that one, but um, you might get their permission, though. Yeah, yeah actually, we might. Um, but there's a, there's basically where the glacier had pulled back, and I know okay. that there's state land that has peat um, that more than a few of us distillers have been kind of looking at going pull a state permit, go pull some peat. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, that sounds great too, Alan. Well, we only make rye whiskey, and so in, in our sort of frontiers that are out there, one thing that's always been fun to think about that we've never had the energy, time, or finance uh, would be on the yeast side of things. And I always sort of fantasized about, you know, propagating a Brooklyn rooftop yeast, <laughs> and Hudson Valley yeast, oh, and that would an be upstate feral. yeast. <laughs> and as we focus more intensively and collaborate, I hope with other empire rise, as Nicole speaks about as well, uh, you know, in New York State, that that would be something that would be fun in a, a blending project of New York State rise. Wow, that would be amazing. And Noah, you? Well, I, I think <laughs> Dave and I are very disappointed that none of you said that you're going to build a wooden three chamber cell or a log cell, which would be fascinating. You're not in the first, insurance Noah, business. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why? They used them in, in they, they had 3,500 gallon like wooden stills yeah. in, in huge distilleries. Yeah. I think they were probably fairly safe. Yeah. So we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're looking forward to when you guys build your wooden stills yeah. Yeah. and we'll be there um, to taste the rye. Well, thank you all for coming and sharing all the rye knowledge for bringing back all these amazing rye spirits that have been lost um, to recent history. And uh, cheers. Cheers. God thank bless you. Cheers. Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always.